I appreciate my friend Barry Neely filling in for me last week, challenging us to pray for our one as we are continuing to focus on who's your one as we think about that person that's dear to us that still does not know Christ, who's never um, uh, made a commitment of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important that we keep praying for these people and asking God for opportunities for us to be able to share the gospel with them, to uh, find an opportunity to uh, witness. It's also important that as we're praying for our one, that we understand that there's a strategy that we need to have in mind as to what we want to do when we have the opportunity to share with that person how we want to go about doing that. Maybe you've never shared your testimony before and um, uh, you're not sure how to do that. I find that the best way to witness with people is by sharing your own personal testimony. And here's why. There are three basic parts to every testimony, to every personal testimony. First, you talk about your life before Christ, how you were enslaved to sin. And then secondly, you talk about how you came to know Christ. That's where you use the gospel and you use verses of scripture that you're a familiar with that talk about coming to know Christ and why that's important. And then thirdly, you share how your life has been changed um, as a result of your coming to Christ, giving your heart to the Lord Jesus. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it to Galatians chapter 4. In chapter 4, in these first seven verses, Paul is reviewing the spiritual biography of every believer. And he describes all three parts of your personal testimony right here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you notice in verses 1 through 3, Paul points out that we were slaves at one time to the elementary principles of this world. We were enslaved to sin. And then in verses 4 and 5, he reveals um, what God has done to bring us to salvation. And then in verses 6 and 7, we learn how our life is different. Well, we've been adopted into God's family according to verse 4, and, and we've been given privileges as children, as sons and daughters of God. So here's what I want you to take away. As I've entitled the message, No Longer Slaves But Sons, or No Longer Slaves But Children. He actually uses the term sons there in the text, but he's talking about children, sons and daughters of God. So here's the takeaway from the text this morning, and that is by God's grace, we are saved so that we might become children of God with all the privileges granted to those in God's family. Well, let's look into our spiritual biography here that Paul gives to us in this section of verses, and I want us to see how God has changed us from slaves 
to sons. So if you've got your Bible uh, open, let's just begin reading in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 7, and then we'll come and break it down. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Well, let's look here. There are three things I want you to see here before salvation, how you came to know Christ, and then the privileges of being in God's family. The first thing I want you to see is the period of slavery before salvation. <clears throat> look back again in what Paul says there in verses uh, 1 through 3. But notice verse 3 in particular. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, now look at this term, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul is giving an example here of a child who may be an heir to a huge inheritance. But until the child reaches the age of maturity, his or her inheritance is under the control of trustees or guardians. In that case, the child is no different than a slave. His or her life is still under someone else's control. So Paul takes a legal fact and turns it into a spiritual truth. He says, we were once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now he's referring here to the world's mindset, which is opposed to God. Paul took this legal fact, turns it into a spiritual truth. He says, you were once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what are these elementary principles he's talking about? Well, let me give you just three. Money, sex, and power. Those elementary principles of the world, friend, are all around us, and we cannot avoid them. Everywhere you turn, there's an emphasis on money. There's an emphasis on sex. There's an emphasis on power. And these principles, these worldly principles, if we're not careful, we will become enslaved to them. We are constantly tempted to turn them into idols and then worship them as gods. Paul says, this is what you were before you came to know Christ, you were enslaved to these worldly principles. Now, this is the Bible's verdict upon fallen humanity. We're enslaved to powers beyond our control. Many of you remember <clears throat> the, uh, in 1959, the classic movie, Ben-Hur, 
Still one of my favorite movies uh, of all time, but <clears throat> Ben-Hur won the Academy Award that year for Best Picture. It was a story based on Lou Wallace's book, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And Charleston Heston played the um, uh, lead uh, character of Judah Ben-Hur. Charlton Heston was magnificent uh, in that movie, but uh, Ben-Hur um, had, uh, was a Jew living in Jerusalem who had become a, a Roman slave. And in one of the most memorable scenes in the movie, he is a galley slave chained to other slaves beneath the deck of a Roman warship. He has no freedom. He's chained to a life of endless toil and sweat. And he was chained to a ship that would eventually sink. Friend, that's a picture of all of us before we met Jesus Christ. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. We were slaves to sin. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So before Jesus came into my heart, I was a slave to sin. Like Ben-Hur, I was chained to a sinking ship. But Jesus came into my heart as he came into your heart and set us free. Now you may say, well, Rick, I'm not really free of sin. I wish I were, but I'm not. Well, that's true. A lot of Christians mistakenly think that when Jesus comes into their hearts, they should be totally free from sin. But listen, before Jesus, I was a slave to sin. But after Jesus came into my heart, I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I still struggle with sin. And there is a difference. Turn over to Romans chapter 7. Hold your place here in Galatians chapter 4. Turn over to, Galatia, to Romans chapter 7. Even the Apostle Paul still struggled with his sin nature after conversion. Paul says the bad things he doesn't want to do, he finds himself doing. The good things he wants to do, he doesn't do them consistently. He finally cried out in frustration. Look in verses 24 and 25 of Romans chapter 7. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? <clears throat> Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, look at this, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now Paul didn't say he was a slave to sin, but in his sinful flesh he was a slave to the law of sin. Now think of it like this. I'm a slave to the law of gravity. That means if I jump up, I'm going to fall down. The higher I jump, the harder I'm going to fall. Paul identifies the law of sin in verse 21. Look back in verse 21 of Romans 7. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies at hand. 
You see, the law of sin Paul discovered is that the more he tried to be good in his own strength, the more he fell into sin. And the harder he tried not to sin, the more he sinned. Friend, even when you and I come to know Christ, we still struggle with our self-centered nature. Amen? The American poet Carl Sandburg wrote, There is an eagle in me that wants to soar, and there is a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. So how do we break free from the law of sin? Well, the same way we break free from the law of gravity. Every time you fly on an airplane, you invoke a higher, stronger law than the law of gravity, the law of aerodynamics. The same thing is true when you and I are struggling with sin. Don't stop reading Romans 7 at Romans 7. Flip over to Romans chapter 8 where Paul wrote about a law that is stronger and more powerful than the law of sin. It is the law of the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. Look what Paul says in verse 2 of Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's why Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So listen, while we may still struggle with sin, we don't have to be a slave to sin when we allow the Holy Spirit of God to rule in us. That's the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's the first thing I want you to see. Your life before Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Let's look at the next component of our testimony found here in this, these verses, and that is the price of sonship. Look in verses 4 and 5. Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, this verse is one that is often used at Christmas. Because it talks about Jesus being born. But look, there is much more here than just the birth of Christ. What does it mean when Paul says, God sent forth his son born of woman? This is a fulfillment of prophecy. The first prophecy about Jesus is found back in Genesis chapter 3. After the serpent deceived Eve... She and Adam, and after she and Adam had disobeyed God, they realized they were guilty. They had disobeyed God. The lie of Satan is still, sin won't hurt you. Sin's not going to harm you. Nothing wrong is going to, uh, bad is going to happen to you if you do this. But listen, friend, the truth is sin always enslaves after God came searching for this guilty pair, for Adam and Eve, after they had uh, taken of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and they had uh, eaten of it, he pronounced a curse upon the serpent. 
Do you remember? He said to, the, to Satan in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we know that Satan's offspring are those who live their lives separated from God's love. When Galatians 4.4 says, Jesus was born of a woman, that is literal fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3. The wicked serpent tried to strike at the heel of Christ, but at the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent that's a fulfillment of genesis chapter 3 god sent forth his son born of a woman at just the right time friend jesus came to redeem those of us who are under the law when we were in shackles when we were enslaved to sin Jesus came to remove our chains. That word redeem means to buy back, to purchase. One of my favorite pictures of Jesus as the Redeemer comes from the Old Testament book of Hosea. I love the book of Hosea. Hosea, you know, was married to a woman named Gomer. Um, <clears throat> after their first child, Hose, uh, Gomer began to grow restless. She was tired of being a stay-at-home mom and uh, being a faithful wife, and she became wayward. They uh, had more sons, though, and one of those sons was actually uh, named Not My Ken, indicating Hosea probably wasn't even the father. Gomer's downward spiral continued until she um, uh, sold herself, uh, she became a prostitute, and uh, she uh, engaged in this kind of life for a period of time. And then um, she got worn out. She, her lovers grew tired of her. She became destitute. Um, she became used up. And then she eventually, her lovers left her and she found no other recourse but to sell herself into slavery. Now the human response from a scorned husband would be something like, she made her bed, let her lie in it. But Hosea displayed the stubborn love and the amazing grace of God towards his wife. He searched for Gomer until he found her disheveled, destitute, and chained to an auction block in this filthy slave market. And out of his great love for her, Hosea was committed to redeem her. And according to Hosea chapter 3, verse 2, Hosea won the auction and paid 15 shekels of silver and 13 bushels of grain to get his wife back. He forgave Gomer for what she had done, for what he, she had put their family through. He brought her back into the home as his wife and as the mother of his children. Friend, that is a powerful parable of the compassion God has 
for those of us who have been slaves to sin, regardless of what your sin has been, regardless of how long you have been enslaved to it, Jesus came to redeem you. Jesus came to buy you back. He paid the ransom price for your freedom, and the price was much more than silver or grain. He gave his life. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you were transformed from the futile ways of your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You know, sometimes when we give our testimony, we talk about what we have done. We often say, I gave my heart to Christ. Or we say, I invited Jesus into my heart. And while both of those statements are true, our salvation isn't about what we have done. It's all about what Jesus did for us. Jesus left the glories of heaven came in the fullness of time, was born of a woman, grew to be a man, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross and died as the sacrifice for the world's sins so that you and I could be adopted by God into his forever family. That's the price of sonship. Now, the last part of your testimony, that's how you become a son of God. You put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, we talked about the theme of Galatians is we are saved by grace through faith um, uh, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, as a result of our faith in Christ, what is our life like after Christ? This is where you begin to share with the person Look, this is what my life was before Christ. This is what Christ has done for me. Now I want to tell you how my life is different today. Look in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, And because you are sons, because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friend, Paul wrote that Jesus redeemed us, that we might be adopted. He refers to our adoption back in verse 4 with the full rights. That's what he's talking about here in verses 6 and 7. With the full rights as God's heirs, as sons and daughters of God. The word adoption comes from two Greek words. Two Greek words. Huos, which means son, and thesia, which means legal standing. So in other words, we've been adopted as sons, as children, with legal standing before God. In the Roman culture, a son could be born into a family, but he wasn't yet a Roman citizen. It wasn't until that son reached the age of 16 or 17 that he would undergo a ceremony called the toga virilism. 
He would lay aside the toga of his childhood and be given the toga of man. His name would then, only then, be added to the census as a Roman citizen. So even though he was born into a Roman family or adopted into a Roman family, it wasn't till he went through this ceremony that he became a citizen of Rome. You know, there are two ways you can become a part of a biological family, either through natural birth or adoption. But to become a part of God's family, you experience both. Spiritual birth and adoption. You are born again spiritually, and then God adopts you into his family. Now, when God places us in his family, we become privileged sons and daughters. What does he do? First of all, he gives us his Holy Spirit to live in us. And the Holy Spirit enables us to call God, look at this, Abba, Father. That's a term of endearment. That word Abba means Dada or Papa or Daddy. It is a tender term. Paul says only the believer who's been delivered from enslavement to the world's principles through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and has been adopted into God's family has the privilege of referring to God not as God, not as Elohim, not as Jehovah, but as Papa, Daddy, meaning there is an intimate relationship between God the Father and His sons and daughters. Paul speaks of this truth in Romans as well. In Romans chapter 8, which we just looked at a minute ago, in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So we're no longer slaves. We're children of God, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself, Paul says, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. For many people today are having an identity crisis. They go to therapy. They attend seminars to discover their inner self. They search out their family tree or try to build their sense of self-worth by their uh, achievements or their awards. But if you want to know who you really are, let me just tell you who you really are. You are Abba's child. You are Papa's child. And he loves you more than you can ever imagine. That's more important than any other sense of self-identity you could ever find. Listen, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, but none of those come close to comparing to the wonder of who I am as Abba's son. I'm not Abba's child because I'm good. I'm not. 
I'm not Abba's child because I deserve it. I'm not. I'm not Abba's child because I obey all the rules of the Bible. I don't. And I can't. I am Abba's child only because in his grace he has chosen to save me and adopt me into his family and give me a love relationship with himself that I could never achieve on my own. I want you to go back with me to the Ben-Hur movie. The last time we saw Ben-Hur, he was chained to the bowels of a ship as a galley slave. The ship is rammed. The chaos ensues, and as water gushes into the ship, Ben-Hur frees other slaves. He then dives into the water, and in the process, he saves the life of the commanding general, Arius. To show his gratitude, Arius petitions the Roman emperor, Tiberius, to free Ben-Hur from slavery. After Ben-Hur receives his freedom, Arius, the general, adopts him as his son. Ben-Hur is legally free. But Ben-Hur, listen, is still enslaved to his rage and his bitterness. He still seeks revenge against the Roman who made him a slave in the first place. But then fast forward to the crucifixion scene of the movie. Ben-Hur is standing there watching Jesus die. There's a powerful scene at the cross in that movie. It's pouring rain. And the camera captures the blood of Jesus running into the rainwater. And the rainwater flows away from the cross. And the blood can be seen flowing down the hill and out into the whole world. Ben-Hur's sister and his mother are then miraculously cured of their leprosy. And Ben-Hur is healed from his hatred and his bitterness. You see, even though he was legally freed from slavery and adopted into a Roman family, it wasn't until the moment that he was saved by Christ that he was truly set free and adopted into God's family. Friend, that's a beautiful picture of what God has done for you and me. You no longer have to be a slave to the world and to the elementary principles of this world. You don't have to be a slave to your own sinful nature. When you kneel at the cross of Jesus, you can experience freedom and forgiveness and God adopts you into his family as his own son and daughter. And God is no longer at that point 
some strange, scary deity. Rather, he now makes it possible for you to call him Abba, Father. And you will experience his love unconditionally, his grace, and you will receive all the privileges of an heir of God. And know that one day when you depart from this world, you will go to heaven and live with him forever and ever and ever. Friend, that's what you need to be sharing with your one. What your life was like before Christ when you were enslaved to sin. What Jesus has done for you and what your life is like now and will be for all eternity. That is your spiritual biography. And Paul says in verse 8, which we'll be looking at next week, if all of that is true, how can you ever go back to what you once were? It doesn't make sense. We'll look at that next Sunday. Stand with me if you will. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, friend, let me just ask you this morning. I know that most of the people in this room can testify to the fact that these things that we've looked at here in Galatians 4 are true in their life, but can you say that about your life? I don't believe that you're here by accident. I don't believe you're here by coincidence. I believe God in His love drew you here this morning because He wants you to understand that just like He loves all the people around you, He loves you just as well. Jesus didn't just die for that person in front of you, the person behind you, the person beside you, for your family member or your good friend, but Jesus came and died for you. There's nothing you can do to deserve it, nothing you can do to earn it. God in His grace simply wants to save you, wants to forgive you of your sins, and He wants to give you His gift of eternal life. He wants to adopt you into His family to be His own son or daughter. Can I just be frankly honest with you this morning and direct, what, what, what would keep you from doing that? Oh, I know that there are voices in your head probably saying, oh, you don't need this. But friend, remember, Satan is the father of lies. He also lied to Eve back in the garden. I would encourage you not to listen to that other voice. But to listen to that still small voice within saying, my son, I love you. My daughter, I love you. 
If you will just confess your sins, I will forgive you for all of them based upon the death of my son on the cross. I will receive you unto myself and I will grant you all the privileges as a son or daughter of mine. Friend, would you just say a prayer in your heart this morning to that effect? God, I know that you love me. I know that I have sinned against you, and for that, I am sorry. God, I ask that you forgive me. On the basis of what Jesus did for me on the cross, I ask Jesus to come into my heart and save me, to be my Savior and my Lord. And I commit, as a member of your family, as your son and as your daughter, Lord, I commit to live for you the rest of my days and look forward to my life in heaven with you forever. If you will pray a prayer similar to that, I promise you God will answer it. Right here and now, God will answer it. You say, well, I'm not sure what I must do after that. That's why we're here, to help you. And we want to do that. But you just need to take that first baby step. Step out in faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. And then trust that God will take care of you the rest of the way. He'll put people in your life who will help you. Father, I pray today that your will be done in each of our lives. For those of us who have made that decision to accept Christ maybe many years ago, but we've forgotten truly what happened to us. We were free, we've been free from the enslavement of sin because of what Jesus did for us. We have the privilege of calling you Abba, Father. And we enjoy all the privileges of sonship or being a daughter, being a child of yours. And Father, I pray that you will also help us to be thinking about that one that we've been praying about. And God, that we would look at our own personal testimony and put it in some kind of form or outline where we can quickly go to it and share from our own experience with that person that we're praying for so that you can use us to be the instrument through which that one that we're praying for is brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would have your will in this time. May you be honored and glorified. May every person in this room be blessed. For we pray it in Jesus' name.